0: Welcome to the College Sports Insider, presented to you by the NCAA and Champion Magazine. I'm Jack Ford. So, have you ever wondered when you see a game being played and a student athlete is injured and you see somebody rush onto the field or on the court or you hear that an injured student athlete is going to be seeing a team physician the next day to assess uh, the nature of their injuries, just who that person is that's rushing out or that's meeting with them and helping them to get better? Uh, well, we were wondering that, and and we thought, let's have a conversation with one of those team physicians. Dr. Doug Ramos is the team physician for Creighton University, and he's been kind enough to agree to sit down and chat with us a little bit. Doctor, it's nice to see you.
1: Thank you. I, I
0: want to get to how you eventually got to where you are now, but but let me start with your own background so people can understand this. Um did you, as a young person, was medicine always your goal or did it come to you at a, a sort of a different time in your development?
1: Yeah, it probably came kind of late. I had a mother that was in healthcare, so that kind of was the introduction and uh, uh, was in high school and wasn't sure what I wanted to do and saw some of my friends being very directed professionally and thought about things I might enjoy. And all of a sudden I said, you know, that's kind of what... Kind of came to me one day. That's kind of what I should do, and where I should try to try to go professional. It's
0: nice when the light goes on. The light went on, and yeah. and from that point, give us a, a your track, if you would, because I I think people need to realize how much time is spent: medical school, intern, residency, fellowship, and then particular specialties. Take us through, through college, and then then to med school.
1: Well, yes, I well from start to finish, till I tell everybody I had my first real job was 17 years after high school, so when... Uh,
0: People don't realize how long that training is.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's one day at a time, because looking back, if I knew it was that long, I might have chose to go different. Uh, anyway, so when I left uh, my little town in Southern Iowa, which is where I grew up, uh, I went to a small college in Iowa, Cornell College, which is in Mount Vernon, Iowa, a small liberal arts school, played basketball there, which was always kind of a greater passion. Uh, uh, Got tired of being hit in football and probably wasn't fast enough to be in track and was okay at baseball. So basketball was where I was a little better, though not great. Um, Graduated from Cornell with a BA in chemistry and then went to uh, uh, Creighton University for medical school. And graduated from Creighton Medical School, then went to Boston did my general surgery training at Tufts New England Medical Center in Boston, then did a...
0: Let me jump in for a second yes. here, if I can. So I, I mentioned to you, I have a daughter who's who's a doctor who's a surgeon, a cancer surgeon, and I tracked, obviously, what she was doing, similar to you. And the decisions within that that your matrix, if you will, are, are fascinating. So um, you get your chemistry degree, you do medical school, and then why was it that you decided you were going to do your residency in general surgery?
1: Well, initially, I was going to go back to my small town and be a primary care family practice doctor because uh, that's what I knew medicine was. I mean, we didn't have specialists, and that was the doctor that you looked up to as a mentor, and uh, that's what I was going to do initially.
0: And then why did you decide to do something different?
1: Well, so then I um, said, well, I'll do general surgery so I could do surgery and then still do primary care medicine, still go back to the small town. And when I was in general surgery, got introduced to... Uh, uh, plastic and reconstructive surgery, which, which attracted me. And so that's kind of progressed to that. Now,
0: again, to get a sense of time here, um, general surgery residency was how long? Six years. Six years. Um, and then when you decided, all right, you know, the plastic and reconstructive was something that really drew you to it, that's more time on top, correct?
1: Another three years. <laughs> <laughs>
0: As you said, it was a lot of years before yeah. you started drawing yeah. a, 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 your, your real job. What, what was it that drew you to the, the plastic and reconstructive surgery? Well, I
1: think it's the same thing that drew me to sports medicine, and that is that it's young and old, mm-hmm. head to toe in some, some degree. I'm not a specialist for everything, uh, but it's very broad, and uh, that specialty often misunderstood by a lot of people. So I, I like the variety, and I like the challenge. And uh, again, every, every age group, and uh, that was attractive.
0: So tell me where you were then when you were doing the, your your residency and then the, the the additional work with plastic reconstruction. So after my
1: general surgery training in Boston at the New England Medical Center, I did a postdoctoral research fellowship at MIT, um, and then my plastic surgery at Harvard, um, and then finished that and made the move to the West Coast.
0: How do you how you get here's a here's a boy from Iowa, All right? Get to the East Coast, which is one thing. And then ends up back it gets up out to the west coast what was the attraction
1: well i was I was faced with two job offers at the time. Um, obviously, you being a yale grad uh, one <laughs> one one uh one job offer was at Harvard, and one job offer was at Stanford. and uh what attracted me at the time was that Stanford had a big campus. With a lot of open space and being a small-town boy from Iowa, I needed some open space for the time. (laughs) And then uh, one of my mentors at the time was a lovely surgeon by the name of Robert Goldwyn, who was in Boston. And I said to Dr. Goldwyn, I said, I don't know uh, which job I should take. I said, it's been quite a ride to stay here. I could be at Harvard with you guys and join the faculty here and practice alongside you or I could go to Stanford. And Dr. Goldwyn, who was very, very wise, stopped the operation, put his hands on my hands. He says, Doug, there's two groups of people that think Harvard is great. And I said, who's that, Dr. Goldwyn? He said, those people that have never been here and those of us that have never left here. <laughs> and I said, thank you. I'm going to take the job at Stanford. Fabulous and, wisdom. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> it is a great place. Both places I were saying, great. They're
0: both I, I mean, that, that's, you want to talk about a marvelous dilemma.
1: Well, the right... The, the ride, you know, as I look back to where I come from, is, seems even more incredible to some degrees because my father grew up in Spanish Harlem in the Bronx and, uh, you know, wanted to do something to get out of the lifestyle there at the time. And uh, so joined the Army during the Korean War. And, um, you know, when I think back all the way back to him and then my grandfather's coming over from Italy and working in the coal mines, it's, it's pretty incredible. and That is, yeah. an,
0: that is an astonishing journey. <laughs> an it Ameri- been, an it, American Tale.
1: It has been good. Mm-hmm. It has been good. So, you've you've established
0: yourself now. You you did some. You were involved in some uh, some really fascinating cases. I saw in your bio you were involved with a team that removed what I guess at the time was the largest tumor um, medically recorded. Right? I, I, still is. Still is. What it was. Still is. Three hundred and six pound tumor. Cor- correct. Correct. Uh, that would be a topic for an entirely different conversation yes. for us as to mechanically how that's done. So um, you, you you had some great experiences out there as, as a surgeon, and then you decide to come back to the, to the Midwest.
1: Why? Well, my wife is a vascular surgeon, so we were leading two very busy professional careers. She was at the University of California, San Francisco. I was at Stanford. We were 45 miles apart. And then we had this wonderful thing called a son, <laughs> and uh, real being a little bit older parents, being two professionals that have busy careers, felt like we needed to provide him with a little bit of closeness to family and a little bit of less hecticness, and so we kind of dialed it back just a little bit to get closer to family and moved back to the Midwest for a little help raising a son, to be quite honest.
0: Right. So uh, moved to, to Omaha?
1: Moved back to Omaha, which mm-hmm. was a place we'd spent a few years, and... Uh, uh, You know, again, to be closer to family in the Midwest. Now, ironically, he's moved back to Boston and works in Boston. (laughs) So it comes full
0: circle. It's interesting how those develop, isn't it? Yes. So your interest in sports, now, I know you were an athlete um, growing up and even through college. Uh, But I'm I'm sure on the surface, people might say, all right, as as a, a plastic and reconstructive surgeon, what is it that's the connection then to sports medicine?
1: Correct. That's a little bit unusual, and I'm not sure there are any, maybe. None that I know Plastic and reconstructive surgery. Part of that stems from um, my interface with other sports medicine guys, particularly when I was at Stanford. And the other thing is in my practice, it encompassed a lot of hand and upper extremity surgery. So that kind of orthopedic and rehab-type medicine kind of tied in. The the real push into it probably came at my time at Stanford where I interfaced with the— and did a lot alongside the team physicians for the San Francisco 49ers and San Francisco Giants. And so there I would be called on to do some upper extremity stuff and then other plastic and reconstructive related stuff. And then the other thing which some people don't think of is, is a lot of injuries are actually trauma type injuries. So they're the things that I was treating in emergency rooms on the general surgery side that now come to play in sports medicine. Um, so, so the introduction really was through some of my colleagues at Stanford, and then it just built on that.
0: So when you got to Omaha and, and, and you came out and you're, you're, you're sort of resettling your life, how was it then that you became associated with Crate?
1: Well, I, I had um, graduated from medical school there, so right. I had an affiliation there. My wife was the chief of vascular surgery there, so we had that affiliation. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoyed sports. And the team physician at Creighton dropped dead on the soccer field, unfortunately. Oh my goodness. A Very uh, beloved man yeah. by the name of Dr. Bevilacqua. And uh, so there was an opening. And I just, knowing that I wanted to be involved in some capacity, said, uh, can I help in any way? And, and, uh, and they said, you certainly can. And the answer was yes, and it just built on that.
0: Tell us how that all works for you. Because you are, you still have your practice in, correct. in, in the area of, of, of plastic and reconstructive surgery. And Creighton has a lot of sports teams. Correct. Um, so how how do you then juggle? Well, clearly, as as a surgeon, you've been juggling all your life. But how do you juggle those two, at least on the
1: surface, uh, fairly different routines? Well, they are they are kind of different. Uh, the implementation or the practice of the medicine between the two is not that hard, but the scheduling is probably the hardest <laughs> issue and dealing with the things that come up from day to day. I'm not the only physician there on the staff. We have about 23 under other wonderful contributing physicians uh, of all specialties that help out. So oftentimes I'm a facilitator, uh, but I'm also a guy that's, you know, plugging the holes and filling the cracks and, and then also doing some primary medicine at times, Um Also, the key is that you have to be very creative in your scheduling and you also have to be very flexible and you have to realize that a lot of the stuff, particularly as the sports medicine stuff, falls to off hours. And and like all teenagers, sometimes that can be 9 or 10 or 11 or 12 (laughs) o'clock at night when you're having a conversation.
0: Right. So on a daily basis then, what what will you be doing as a, a team physician?
1: Well, typically the day starts... Like most college kids, they're not ready to get up or do too much early in the morning <laughs> though though um a lot of the interface is occurring near the near the afternoon, so I'll do my practice my private practice component during the day and then hook up with the teams in the afternoon in the training rooms or on the court um or fields um uh, and then spend time there for you know an hour or two or three, depending on the situation. sometimes it's quiet sometimes i am and i hope i'm just there as a spectator most of the time in the afternoons but um and then a lot of times off-hour conversations because you can't really get their ear during practices and stuff so you know you kind of keep your ear to the ground and and are there for them if they if they call and then occasionally i'll try to try to show them oh i don't know surprise them i guess a little bit every once in a while I'll show up for a 5 a.m. boot camp workout at the start of the season just to show him that old Doc can yeah. kind uh, of be used with to
0: be, him. Doc used to be able to bring it Yeah, when he was an athlete. Not anymore, though. Yeah. Well, the, the, the thing about the, as we get older is is hopefully wisdom takes over yes. and convinces us, don't even try what you used to be able You're to do. You're absolutely correct. Yeah. How do you think the, the position of a, a team physician has changed over the last, let's say, decade or two?
1: Well, I think it has become more complicated for a lot of reasons. One is that, you know, the standard of care and what's expected um, of us has changed. I mean, it has in all of medicine. I mean, I think our uh, our visibility with social media, you know, concussions, uh, uh, to make a point, very visible and stuff, protocols now developed, some develop. And, and put forward and led by the NCAA here, so those things have brought a lot of things to the forefront. And so we're having to focus more on protocols, best practices, and standards that didn't exist 20 years ago, didn't ex- exist 10 years ago. Not only in sports medicine, but in medicine in general. So so we're having to now implement all those things that that we are taking a look at that need to have best practices, and and that and we're not implementing all of them. I mean, we're we're trying. We're just as you know, this week, we're meet, the Competitive Safeguards Committee is meeting here in Indianapolis, and um, uh, we will address some of those issues. And then it will take years before they're fully implemented. And, and therein lies a little bit of the dilemma also at, at different size schools and what resources well, why are.
0: Why does it take so long to get things implemented once there have been decisions made?
1: Well, for starters, you have to go through administrations of, of institutions of higher education, and they frequently the wheels there sometimes turn somewhat slowly, albeit good institutions. They, they tend to turn slowly. The other so, thing... So
0: to clarify, just because an, an NCA committee might say, this is what we're going to do, doesn't mean it immediately is being done throughout the 1,100 institutions. In fact, almost
1: never is that occurring. Right. And and then some of the practicalities of geographic locations to to specialists or the resources needed to carry out those best practices, or finances. I mean, if you take a Division three school who... You know, one basketball team may uh, may have a total budget of, say, $30,000, where another program may have a $30 million budget. Uh, that's a huge disparity. And implementing some of these costly medical things just, just are impractical. So we're, we're, I think, as a whole in sports medicine, we're struggling as to how to find some balance and, and provide as good a care to the D3 athlete as you do to the D1 athlete. And that's that's difficult.
0: You mentioned that you are uh, in Indianapolis um, as part of meetings for the NCAA committee on competitive safeguards. What, what's
1: that? What does that committee do? Well, the, the committee has a range of all people involved in the delivery of sports medicine. So, trainers, psychologists, nutritionists, administrators, faculty, um, and and it really addresses a wide range of issues. An incredibly large. Number of topics as it relates to student athlete health and well-being, from uh, from medical care on things such as concussions, sudden cardiac death, mental health, sexual assault, um, a whole range of issues are, are addressed and, and and a dialogue is had and and a direction is tried tried um, tried to be given um, and then. In the end, we want to come up with the best practices for all the issues that come up for the delivery of care on these young athletes.
0: And have you found in your experience then that, that this mechanism, if you will, bringing everybody who is involved together periodically to talk about it, have you found that it's been effective?
1: It is effective to a point. It is The dialogue is great. The The collegiality and the need is, well, the collegiality is great. The need is, is definitely there. It has to occur. Getting back to the implementation, though, that is the difficulty. Even even if we are here involved making some of those decisions and trying to come up with best practices, even going back to our own institutions, it's difficult to get them implemented. And then getting them disseminated, approved through governing committees and implemented at other institutions takes takes really years. The cycle takes many, many years. And we're just, we're just starting. I mean, this whole concussion thing, which is obviously at the forefront within college sports, professional sports, was probably the first large initiative uh, to improve the quality of care and set some standard of care. Uh, and it still has a ways to go as you witness uh, throughout college and professional sports.
0: Are you then optimistic, at, at, based upon what you've seen in the course of your experience and what you're participating in now, that, it, that indeed we are recognizing what needs to be done and at least taking steps in that direction?
1: Well, I'm always optimistic, but I'm definitely optimistic in this situation because we're moving in the right direction. And you can't get uh, too frustrated or bothered by the pace, though you always want to push the pace and try to implement it quicker. Um, but we're moving in the right direction. There's no question. I mean, you know, a big step was the, the appointing of a... Uh, chief medical officer for the NCAA, that that really helped to uh, uh, improve communication. The, the Sports Science Institute uh, as an entity helped further the progress. And now just literally within the last several weeks, the the appointing of a new director of sports medicine in Le Guin Durden from the University of Texas um, adds another step in that implementation and communication between the committee and the grassroots and, and the NCAA.
0: Are you seeing that that things have gotten better in terms of, I'll go back to the era when I'm playing college football in the 70s. And, you know, a lot of folks that played in that era will say, you know, you got banged up and essentially you'd have a, an assistant coach or maybe a head coach or maybe a trainer saying, all right, can you go? And if you said, yeah, I can go, you're, you're, you're back on the field. And then, as you know, you were an athlete, and most athletes are going to say, yeah, I can go, even if they really, really can't. Uh, are, are you finding that... We're getting better at getting other people into that decision. Yourself as a as a team physician, um, the 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 trainers, somebody who's going to say, you know what, we know you want to go, but we're not so sure you should be going. So we're going to make that decision now.
1: Yeah, that that's the key. And I, you know, in the back hallway of arenas or on the sidelines of field, the real discussion, and and you've only got a few seconds to make it, is pointing out to the athlete. If you're not ready to go, you may harm yourself more. They still have to put the input in because they're the patient or the, or the participant. Uh, so if they give you misinformation, you're going to be misled. So you've got to at least convince them that um, that they need to give you accurate information, whether it be a head injury or a knee injury or whatever. Ultimately, you do ask them how they feel and try to get some feel for what they're doing. But uh, y- and that's where the trust that you build during the season really comes in because if they know you're, you're on their side, they're going to kind of listen to you and then remind them that, you know, they're now a freshman in college and you've done 17 years to do this, so <laughs>
0: sometimes they'll listen. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Doug Ramos, it, it's, it's been a pleasure. It's fascinating what you're doing and, as you said, how it's changed over the years and indeed something that gives us all a cause for optimism. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. Thank you. Does it for this edition of the College Sports Insider. Hope you'll join us next time. I'm Jack Ford. Thanks for joining us.